Boom. Hello and welcome to the Executive Protection Lifestyle Podcast, Season 3. With your host, Byron Rogers. This podcast is dedicated to the executive protection practitioner, the private security professional. In this podcast, we're going to talk about the mental, emotional, psychological, physiological fitness that goes into being an efficient and effective executive protection agent. Whether you're in law enforcement, whether you're a mom that's looking at how to protect her children or a father that's focused on how to protect his family, I believe this podcast has something for all of you. We might even get into some tales from the crypts of true Hollywood stories from time to time. I'm doing this podcast because I feel the reality of this job is simple. If you really want to be good at executive protection, it's more than just a job. It really is a lifestyle. And those of you who've been in the game for any serious amount of time, you already know what I'm saying is true. So if that sounds interesting to you, enjoy the show. Out. Boom, what's up you guys? We're at another episode of the Protector Podcast. Um, I'm your host, Byron Rucks, of course, and then I've got Tim Clemente here with me, sir. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Byron. Absolutely. It's an honor to uh, be able to hang with you. Um, I was looking at all the things you've done and I was just like, man, I mean, you've been around the block a couple times. Well, I've uh, had a few more years on the street than you have. So, yeah, so you got to go around the block as much as you can, when you can. So. While I'm able, I'm trying to go around the block. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Like I kind of, for me, you know, people say things to me and sometimes I'm like, I got to do what you can, man. Like this life is going to feel like it's over in 10 minutes, probably. It Um, it moves quickly. Yeah, that's awesome. So I guess we'll jump right into it. Um, Who would you say you are at at your core? You've lived a life of a warrior, you know, and you've also kind of lived the life of an artist. I don't know how you would classify the things you do in the Hollywood. It's this cool fusion, but who are you, you know, at your core as a man? I'm just a guy. I happen to be uh, a guy that's happily married, great woman. Uh, I've got uh, nine and eight kids, and uh, that's my greatest life achievement uh, is uh, the family. Um, You know, I, I... I've defended this country, worked uh, as a cop on the streets of inner city U.S. and as an FBI agent in the United States and abroad. And it's an honor and a privilege to represent the people of the United States, represent the government and do those things. But it's the greatest honor to uh, represent my wife as her husband and my kids as their father. I mean, it's the most important job a human being can have. So it's the one I'm proudest about. Outstanding. That's that's awesome. You know, I um I had Mike Pannone and I've had a few other gentlemen on the podcast, you know, that are just they're just men that have accomplished a lot of things that a lot of people dream about. And I I keep getting this really anticlimactic trend <laughs> with you guys where you're like, I'm just a guy. Like, you know, Mike was like, you know, Mike Pannone, you know, Delta Force. And uh, I mean, he's just done all kinds of things. And he's like, He's like, I'm Kayla's dad, man. He's like, that's it. <laughs> I'm like, come well, on, Mike. <laughs> well, Byron, let me back you up a Amazing. little bit. If, yes, if my kids were just normal mopes, um, then you, it, it might sound like that's an excuse, but I have some pretty impressive kids. I have, uh, you know, I even have a couple of grandkids now too. So that's even uh, a, a great thing to be, uh, to have as an achievement. I didn't have mm-hmm. much to do with them. I had more to do with my kids than I did with mm-hmm. the grandkids being born, but still. Um, but right. you know, I have I have 
a daughter that works for the aerospace industry and the top company in, in that industry. And she's, uh, wow. she's in charge of insider threats in, in that company. And I would name the company, but I don't, I don't think I should because of the context. But I have another son that was a rocket scientist and uh, has since launched his own company <laughs> doing health uh, related things. So, I mean, I, I have amazing kids. I have uh, yeah. two daughters that run companies and one that's a program manager for a DOD contractor. So all of my kids are not only gainfully employed, but, but very much productive members of society. And that's, you know, as a father, to be able to say that we raised the kids, my wife and I, and, and I, I credit my wife more than myself by a long shot, but okay. the kids are out there. They're not, they're not living off uh, the dole of anybody but themselves. And, and they're successful, they're productive, and they're great human beings. That's something Man. to be proud of. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. I, it's, I always say that um, a man's first enterprise is his family, you know, and in my world of executive protection, I get to spend a lot of time behind closed doors with people that mm -hmm. other people want to be. And so I kind of see that truth, you know, everyone thinks this guy's this, but then at, at home, everyone kind of, you know, knows he's not, but you know, a prophet's without honor in his own home anyway. So <laughs> it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, it is. Oh, that's awesome. No, that's beautiful. And, you know, I'm on the, I'm at the beginning of that journey as well myself. So I'm starting to get some concept of what it's, what it's like to have your little humans like looking up to you and stuff. It's yeah. amazing. I, yep. You know, they, they go from being little humans to big humans very quickly. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's they awesome. Enjoy it while it lasts. Exactly. Well, mine can't like talk back or, or you know, she, she doesn't think she's yeah, the yeah. best dancer in the room yet. So I'm just enjoying that phase, man. Let's see. Why, why do you do a lot of what you're doing these days? Like what's your current mission? Well, you know, I've transitioned from uh, accumulating stories to telling stories. And that's kind of what the life has been. And it wasn't planned. Uh, I never had any intention of ending up in Hollywood, but uh, I was a cop. Then I was an FBI agent Then I worked for DOD as a, as a military advisor over in Iraq. And um, when I was doing that, I was last in Iraq. Well, not last, the time before last, I was in Iraq. I spent most of 2007 there and watched a lot of TV at night when there was nothing else to do. When you're on base, uh, I worked in a command post and we had a lot of briefings all day. And when everything would quiet down, would usually be in the wee hours. And so we catch up on American TV. I had to work 16 hour shifts and I had three computer screens in front of me watching wow. every IED activity, not just in the theater of war, but around the world. And I would have wow. a TV going with the news or a TV show. And I watched a few shows, I caught up on the show, the unit, which was kind of new at that time. And I just thought, you know, I could do that. I could, I could be there writing or doing something on a TV show. How tough is that? And right. sure enough, Almost exactly a year later, I found myself in Hollywood working for the show, The Unit, wrote my first episode of TV and became a tech advisor and kind of parlayed, uh, again, living stories to telling those stories. And, and the, the first question you asked about who I am, I think I'm still a, a fighter. I've always been a fighter for truth and justice. And I'm trying to do that in Hollywood. Uh, there's a lot of mixed messages that come out of Hollywood. And I think it's important to have people from your world, my world, our world, the real world, going and telling those stories in any format or any fashion they can. Doesn't mean everybody's gonna become a TV writer or a feature writer, but 
you know, you're telling stories. You're, you're here using this podcast to be able to tell your stories and, and communicate with other people to tell their stories. And that dialogue is so important. And unfortunately, a lot of society has abandoned that storytelling and we've left it to a very, very small core group in Hollywood to tell most of our stories. And unfortunately, the message kind of gets tainted when it's just a small group telling that story. We need, you know, there's a lot of talk about diversity and diversity isn't what people look like in my mind, it's who they are. And you need a diversity of opinions and a diversity of backgrounds and experiences. And if those people tell stories, then more people know what's going on in the world and they hear from the people who live those things. And I think that's important. That's extremely important. yeah, that's righteous work. Cause I, I, I don't know. I feel like those stories, um, having them kind of crystallized or like canonize and even a remotely accurate way. Cause you know, guys like us see some, some, some things in Hollywood and we're like, you can't even watch the thing cause they keep, you know, the guy, everyone's clean and the tactics are horrible. Yeah. And the, you know, the good guy's holding the gun like this and you're like, Oh, well, not, not even like that by when they're doing this. And they've got yeah. the gun and they're peeking around a corner because there's a bad guy over there shooting at me. And I, you know, yeah. I, one of the shows I've worked on is NCIS Los Angeles since, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 12 seasons now I've been working on that show. Started out as a tech advisor, wrote a few episodes for the show. And in one of the first episodes, I was working with LL Cool J and Chris O'Donnell and the rest of the cast. Great Thank people, you. all good yeah. human beings too. And I remember there was a scene where there was a shootout and, uh, one of the lead actors was hiding behind a car and then coming out to take the shot to kill the bad guy. Because in every NCIS episode, uh, NCIS LA, there's a couple of shootouts, one in the middle of the show, one at the end of the show, usually. Gotta be some shootouts. You know? <laughs> so a few people have to die in every episode. Now, I'm, And I have some friends that were in NCIS, the entity, and mm-hmm. never drew their weapons uh, in the course of their duty ever in their careers, but that's right. all right. A little <laughs> bit of an exaggeration. But anyway, and, and I believe it was Chris O'Donnell that was you know, trying to figure out how, how, where to hold the gun and how to come out. And I explained to them the four rules of firearm safety that right. every range officer, I was a firearms instructor for decades and I still am, you know, everybody drills it into you what those rules of firearm safety are for. And when I explained to the cast what those rules are and why they're in effect, like treat every weapon as if it's loaded, never put your finger on the trigger unless you're willing to shoot or kill, you know, right. be aware of what's beyond your target. All those things are really simple, but they make sense. So pointing the gun at your forehead and sticking your melon out around <laughs> where there's a threat violates two of the most important rules. Treat that Absolutely. weapon as if it's loaded. Don't put your finger on the trigger. And the natural inclination you see from everybody in Hollywood is to put their finger on the trigger because it looks cool. Right. So I said, if you follow those rules and you understand that you have a weapon, the weapon is part of you at this point, but only right. use it properly. And that means... If there's a bad guy over there, why am I pointing my gun at the sky? I'm not mad at God or the birds or anything else that might be up there. I'm mad at that guy that's shooting at me. So how, how about pointing the gun at him and then coming around the corner? And so right. simple things like that, you know, it made sense to them. So that was me, a firearms instructor, former SWAT team leader. I've trained thousands of people on how to shoot. And so teaching actors, it wasn't like, hey, this would look cooler. It was do you know why we do what we do? And once they understood that, that whole cast has been great for, for a decade plus now because they understand the fundamentals of it. So, you know, and, and I get paid to do it. So how can you complain about that? It's fun. Yeah. 
working with great people and and uh, getting a paycheck every once in a while. Absolutely, yeah, that's awesome. And then, uh, then another thing you were saying, I think that was really important. I think especially not to get too political, but I think especially with some um, I don't know changes we're seeing in American culture around um, who we have been in the past, maybe on the way to who we're becoming in some ways you know, telling those stories of old is kind of how we don't forget how we got this freedom and how we got here. I think that's very righteous, very important. Yeah, definitely. And and I've, um, I got lucky because I met uh, a showrunner, an executive producer in Hollywood early on, because my brother, who was also an FBI agent, was a, a serial killer profiler in the behavioral analysis unit. Okay. And he consulting on the show Criminal Minds when the pilot was first being filmed. And the showrunner at that time was a guy named Eddie Bernero. And Eddie had worked on the show Third Watch, created that show, which is about cops and first responders in New York City. And uh, Ed is a former Chicago PD officer. He had been promoted to sergeant, was on the street with Chicago PD, was an Air Force uh, shore patrol officer before he became a cop. Okay. So he comes from the real world. And he brought that real world to everything he did. And he kind of shepherded my brother and I early on saying, you know, most people come from the real world, come to Hollywood and get exploited. They literally, they're like an orange that becomes orange juice. You're still the orange. There's nothing left of value in you because it's been squeezed out of you. And wow. then you're basically cast aside and discarded. And that's what happens with most people like you and I that end mm. up becoming storytellers if we don't, you know, create a pathway to being able to tell the stories ourselves and so ed bernero was great in uh in telling us you know that you've got to become writers you can't be tech advisors and consultants only you can start out but the objective should always be you being able to tell your stories as you want to tell them and it, it may take months it may take years it may take decades but that should always be the goal and so my brother and I try and do that with a lot of other people that come from the real world to get them into that line of work and slowly and methodically but with the same goal in mind you got to be the one that tells the story wow that's some wisdom I'm paying attention that's that's good yeah, stuff well, I learned from a smart guy Ed Bernero outstanding good to go wow okay I'm going to remember that. You got to be the one to tell the story. That's good. Uh, what would you say? You touched on it a little bit, but would you mind going into your kind of your tactical background as we drop into some of these other questions real quick? Kind of what did you do in your warrior uh, protector career? Yeah, well, I was uh, I was a cop, St. Louis Metro PD. Um, I started shooting uh, on my own, taught myself before I became a cop. So by the time I got in the academy, I was a decent shooter and finished with Top Gun in the police academy and then was on the streets for just a little over three years. I had actually applied to the FBI before I became a cop and there was a hiring freeze. So I was frozen out of the process about midway through it. Worked with St. Louis Metro PD. We just heard this week that St. Louis had the highest homicide rate per capita this year and broke a 50 year record of the most murders per capita. And uh, really? the record- Beat previous, Chicago and all that? Yeah, well, <laughs> Per capita, it's a much okay. smaller city. Uh, I think there's only about a quarter of a million people in the city of St. Louis. And okay. I think they had 266 uh, homicides last year. So the, I think the number was somewhere around one per 850 people. Whereas the national average is one per 100,000 people, one homicide per uh -huh. 100,000 people. And in St. Louis, it's less than one per thousand. I mean, less meaning it's a greater number of homicides per person. 
Um, when I was there in 1993, I was a cop. We had the record at that time, which was 277 homicides, which at the time was one of the top in the country per capita. So St. Louis has always had a problem with that and uh, has always vied for being one of the most violent cities in the country, if not the most violent city. So it was a great place to be a cop. We were busy. I mean, great in, in bad ways and great in good ways. Uh, mm. It was challenging. It was fun. It was exciting. A lot of gang violence that uh, made the city unlivable, unfortunately, for so many people. Wow. But when you're a cop, I, I would rather be chasing real bad guys that are actually doing heinous at deeds and putting them behind right. bars than writing parking tickets and, uh, you know, people failing to put their blinker on for three seconds before they turn. Right. Um, so I did that, then uh, transitioned to the FBI and worked international narcotics for several years and then transitioned to the counterterrorism side. So uh, a couple of years before 9-11, I started on a squad, the National Capital Response Squad. And that squad was responsible for the National Capital Region, DC, as well as uh, the Middle East, Africa, and, uh, and Europe. So we handled any terrorist events that happened there. I was uh, worked my way up to the SWAT team, which was an ancillary duty uh, in the FBI office. I became the SWAT team leader and led the FBI's Washington field office SWAT team for a few years, running all the training and uh, doing missions. Uh, we did a lot of security work. Uh, I know you're in the security field and yes, we did a lot of protection work for uh, agents within the FBI and other assets. Uh, we did protective details for foreign, uh, uh, not heads of state, not uh, you know presidents and prime ministers, but for a lot of the peers of like attorney generals from other country or uh, ministers of justice from Saudi Arabia, things like that. We did protection details here for those foreign leaders. And then when we were abroad, we would do protection details for American assets in foreign countries, uh, the director of the FBI, the attorney general, or agents, regular FBI field agents that were being sent into a hostile environment, such as Iraq or the Balkans or Africa to do investigations. And we, as the FBI SWAT team, would be the primary inner circle of protection for those assets. So did that for um, about seven or eight years. It was a lot of fun. It was great. And then uh, ended up leaving the Bureau and taking an early uh, retirement because the DOD had started a program to counter IED use in the, in the Iraq theater and uh, Afghanistan theater in uh, 2006, late 2006, early 2007. And so I left the Bureau to work that program over in Iraq for uh, about a year. Okay. Great work. Yeah, outstanding. That's, uh, and then and then right into Hollywood after that or? Yeah, and then I was actually, I came home from Iraq for a couple of months, was working with the 101st Airborne Division to prepare them for uh, an 18 month tour in Afghanistan. I was about to deploy to Afghanistan. I was actually at uh, Fort Benning, Georgia on the tarmac waiting for a C-141 to pick us up and fly to Afghanistan. And my brother called me and said uh, that he wanted to pitch a show idea to CBS. Would I be interested in going to Hollywood? And I said, I can't, I'm getting on a plane in a few minutes. Yeah. <laughs> he called back a half hour later and said, hey, guess what? I just got notified that the plane's delayed. It broke down in Greenland and won't be here till next Wednesday. So I got three or four days with nothing to do. So. He said, all right, let's go to LA. So I, he was in New York. I was in uh, Georgia. We flew to LA, pitched a show idea with that showrunner, Ed Bernero, I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And ended up selling a pilot to CBS the next day. So I went from being a uh, 
counterterrorism agent and a military advisor to a Hollywood writer overnight. That's Ridiculous. so good. Ridiculous. That's and just now, that doesn't imply that I actually knew how to write. It just <laughs> I became a Hollywood writer. I was literally from that day forward, I was paid to do it. So outstanding. Right place, right time, right relationships. Yep. You know, uh people say overnight success takes 10 years. I think it takes 10 years at least, you know, because you got to come become the man to be the man, you know, like yeah. you can yep. write what you can write because you, you've done the thing, you know, so that's. Yep. But sometimes that's, you're forced at gunpoint to do it. And uh, that's, that's <laughs> the situation here. you know, I, I pitched a story, told the story mm -hmm. about my squad and some of the work we did and mm -hmm. everybody in the room loved it. And they said, well, buy it. Next thing you know, now you got to write the script. Yeah. Now you're Frankenstein so just sat up and you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. I got to feed this guy. Like we got to keep him alive. <laughs> Yeah, well, I gotta. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that's a beautiful story. And then, especially when I'm in this, you know, we're in these conversations with guys that have done so much with gentlemen like yourself. I always like to go through different phases of life and just kind of ask what your biggest takeaways were from these different things that that you've done. Um, so, kind of with your law enforcement career, what would you say was your biggest lesson or takeaway? Well, I think the time? biggest lesson. I go back to when I was a cop, the biggest lesson for sure was uh, the first thing I talked about, the role of fathers. Um, mm. Being a father is important because you steer your kids, especially sons, but daughters as well. It's, it's an important role. And there's a reason why families do better when you have parents, when you have a father and a mother that, that care about the kids and their upbringing. Mm. And that was the one thing that was so sorely lacking in the inner city in St. Louis. I mean, so many of these kids, I mean, the average cop, I don't know how many homicides the normal cop works in a city, but my worst day, I had five homicides in my police precinct, my beat that I was first officer on scene because they were all in my beat. And I had 10 or 11 homicides that week. And wow. so you know, that's, that's an astronomical figure for a population of a little over 300,000. You know, I worked, I worked over a hundred homicide scenes in less than three years on the street, actually well over a hundred, closer to probably 200 or more. And wow. uh, you see the common denominator of often the victims and the shooters themselves mm -hmm. is that they're from broken homes. They look for belongings somewhere. And unfortunately the belonging they find is in a gang or some criminal enterprise that replaces what would be the hole filled by a family. Wow. And, you know, this isn't to denigrate single mothers or single dads or broken families. I mean, it happens. Not everybody can have that opportunity. But, but I think right. the, the biggest takeaway I took from being there was that it's important to, to be a parent to your kids. Uh, you can't let schools do it. You can't let your neighbors do it. It's got to be you. And uh, that, that was a tough lesson because I saw so many situations where these kids just never had a shot. They didn't have any opportunity. And when I became an FBI agent, I said I worked uh, narcotics for a while. I was on an international narcotics squad, chasing wow. down primarily the cartel. Cali cartel was our primary target. And we had informants that we were chasing down dis distribution networks here in the United States. Mm -hmm. I remember having this one guy that was a dope dealer in, uh, in DC, got arrested in West Virginia. Guy about probably in his late 20s, 28 or 29 years old. And all he could remember when he got arrested in West Virginia, I brought him back to DC. And I remember sitting in the car with him for three or four hours driving with him. 
and he was telling me his story of life. And mm -hmm. I was asking, why are you here? How, how come you got busted in West Virginia for dealing dope? And he yeah. explained that from the time he was in diapers, he only dealt dope. You know, his, <laughs> his aunts, uncles, his mother didn't really know his father. And it was all he knew. And he just thought, this is what we do. This is, this is how we live. And he, he was in Southeast DC slinging crack rocks or uh, whatever wow. else his whole life. And uh, I worked with him for about two years every day working this drug case. And he was, he was phenomenal. And I could tell this is a guy that's trying to turn his life around. This yeah. is a guy that's realizing he did wrong. And he, when I first met him, he was explaining what he did, but he never explained the why of it other than this is what I thought. And then yeah. he started to realize I'm not helping anybody, you know, not even myself. And when, uh, when it came to time for his uh, sentencing, I had to go to the court in, in West Virginia and show up for him and explain what he had done and how he turned his life around. Yeah. And the judge was fantastic. The judge, because not every judge will will listen to that. They don't Believe care. Yeah. And this this was a good federal judge that listened intently to what I said. And he said, uh, the guy was originally going to get like a 15 to 20 year sentence because there wow. was a lot of dope in his background. But he had cooperated so much that the judge reduced that sentence down to six months. Wow. And the judge allowed him to delay uh, showing up in, in uh, prison for six months. And he asked that I try and use that six months with this guy to help him out, to get his feet on the ground so that he's going to have to serve some time. But when he gets out, he knows what can, what the possibilities are for him. And wow. so I got him away from DC, got him down mm -hmm. to the Virginia beach area, which is big military town. It's a tourist town, mm -hmm. got a job working in a McDonald's and uh, it was his first legitimate job. 28 yeah. or 20 years old first time he's getting paid by paycheck not by rolled up cash and right and he he called me after he'd been down there a couple of weeks and he said this is the greatest job in the world and i'm like wow thank <laughs> god man shock. thank god yeah yeah he said you know i i'm here i am a black guy from inner city dc down in a mostly white town at the beach yeah all these people are coming in and they call me sir and he said because you know, there's a lot of military down there. So it's, right. it's ma'am and sir. Right. And he was blown away. He, the first couple of times it happened, he was suspicious. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah. He's like, what's going on here? Yeah. And, uh, and, and then he said, it was just so great. I, people would talk to me and not, not care who I was and not worry about who I was or what my background was. And he said, you know, I realize I could be a normal person. I said, of course you can. You're, you're a That's good man. Awesome. You just never had that chance before. And yeah. I, at the end of that six months, I picked him up and I had to take him to the prison. Mm -hmm. I drove him to the prison and I said, you know, do what you got to do time-wise, do well, study, do whatever you can while you're there, make productive yes. time of it. Because when you get out, that's when your life begins. You have a whole new life. The judge gave you a lease on life. He gave you this six month window so you could see what's possible. Now you got you to prove yourself in this next six months and then yeah. start a life. And the, the guy now 30 years old, hugs me, squeezes me tight and says, you're the closest thing to a father I've ever had. And I, I was blown away. And I was like, wow. wow. And I remember telling my wife, it was a powerful moment. I, I never expected yeah. that reaction from him. And that guy did his six months, got out and moved to Colorado or out in the Rockies somewhere. Mm -hmm. And he went trout fishing 
the first week he was out there and he said, I cannot believe the life I've been missing. He said, there's just, oh, never knew all this was possible. And so wow. you asked me what's important about, it. I mean, that was a phenomenal um, <laughs> turn of events from yeah. chasing down the cartel and drug dealers and everything else to taking a guy that was a dope dealer. And now he's a productive member of society, living life the way it should be lived. And he's a solidly good person. He had the chance yeah. in the second go around that he unfortunately didn't get when he was born. Yeah. So uh, I, I don't take any credit for that. It was all him. He worked his butt off, did everything he needed to do and uh, made a productive uh, life for himself. It's a great, great success story. That was like a lifetime, or that was like a Showtime original right there. Like, have you have you written a script on that? That was amazing. I've actually been trying to track him down for the last uh, several months because I I, yeah. I don't want to write that story. Mm. I want to write that story with him. Yeah. And so I've yeah. been trying to reach out to him, and I, I I don't know where he is right now. I don't want to say his name. Yeah. On this. Right because there may be others with the same name that I don't want to embarrass anybody that everybody thinks they're all dope dealers because they have that name, but right. I'm, I'm going to track him down one of these days. And, and then that will be a Showtime original and it will be with his name as the first name you see. Boom, man. That's good stuff. That was great. Uh, that even just being able to serve in that way, you know, it's just amazing. Uh, and to know that you made all the difference for someone. Um, that's awesome. And that'll have a ripple effect in our world. So that's like, I don't know, that's some of the best work in the world, in my opinion. I, I think you're right. Because who knows what, what, uh, what's his, his future family wise and everything yeah. else. But I guarantee it's different than it might've been uh, a few years prior. hundred percent cycles that he stopped and also new things that he's, he's getting to build. Biggest takeaway from the FBI and SWAT and all that stuff. We get a lot <laughs> of digging on SWAT. We, uh, yeah. you know, we did raids. We did uh, a lot of drug warrants. We did manhunts. Uh, Eric Rudolph was in the mountains of North Carolina after the 96 uh, bombing at the Olympics. And all the SWAT teams from around the country were out uh, chasing him down and hunting him in the mountains up there. We've done, uh, we worked the embassy bombings in East Africa in 1998. The U.S. embassies both in Kenya and Tanzania were bombed and we were over there working for a month or so. Uh, I spent uh, a couple months in Iraq, actually about four months in Iraq, doing uh, investigative work there. The uh, the great thing about being on an FBI SWAT team versus most police departments, you have a few departments like uh, Emergency Services Unit and NYPD and LAPD SWAT that are full time, that have all the equipment and the training they need. But you know, most guys, you're on a SWAT team, and like my local county county PD here. It's a part-time thing. They get a day of training a month. You know, they do more raids than they do training hours, and wow. that makes it really tough. You know, it's a it's a dangerous thing. It takes training to yeah. be up to up to the top of your game. Uh, they also don't have budgets for things like ammunition, which is vitally important. Getting range time in and slinging lead makes you safer, better, more capable, and far less likely to have a problem with your weapon, an accidental discharge, or shoot somebody that doesn't deserve to be shot or doesn't need right. to be shot. Generally happens with people that don't have a lot of time with their gun, you know, mm -hmm. where they react on a situation and they react badly because they don't have the real world practical training to put themselves in a situation that they might encounter in the real world. That's why training is so vital. So uh, one of the things I did 
as an FBI SWAT team leader, uh, the squad I was on, we had uh, tremendous liaison responsibilities where it was our mission on this squad to have liaison with every other entity that was our peer. So there were 26 okay. different entities and agencies within the Washington metropolitan area that had their own tactical units, whether they were middle, uh, excuse me, military special operations teams or local sheriffs, city PD, state police departments that had their own tactical units. You know, from the US Capitol Police, we saw the Capitol Police, of course, on the news big time today. Right. Uh, they had what was called their, their CERT team, uh, search and emergency containment team or something like that. I can't remember what the acronym was for. Um, and, and Washington Metropolitan Police Department SWAT team. So I worked with all of those teams, got them training, got them down at Quantico so they could use the great facilities. Because again, in the FBI, we have Quantico. I'm, I'm in Washington, D.C., 35 miles from Quantico. So our SWAT team could train in the tire shoot house, in the new shoot house, or in the tactical firearms training center, which had movable walls and aircraft fuselage that could move up and down that had all sights and sounds so you can uh, you can mimic what might happen in a hijacking on an aircraft. We wow. had incredible facilities, plus indoor and outdoor shooting ranges. We could shoot any day of the year. We had warehouses stocked to the ceiling with ammunition. We, we had everything we needed. And so yeah. I tried to share that with all the other teams in the area. I, I couldn't give them millions of rounds of ammunition, but I could invite them down, train them, and give them ammunition for a couple of days of training. We used to bring uh, local teams down to Blackwater with us in Moyoc, North Carolina, because our team trained there several times a year. So I would always invite some of the locals, yeah. two or three guys from a you know half a dozen different teams, and bring down you know a couple dozen of our guys and a couple dozen locals, so they could train with us, do the iterations, the training, the physical training, everything, and it really was helpful for them, but it was helpful for us because now when things like the DC sniper case kicks off and you have every jurisdiction in the area having to work together in a manhunt, knowing every tactical leader and all the guys on all the teams is extremely helpful. It allows you to have great communication and interoperability, which is vital when you have uh, you know, a situation like, again, what we saw today in Capitol Hill where the Capitol is overrun, anarchy in Capitol Hill and what happens? The U.S. Capitol Police put out a mutual aid call. And a mutual aid call is help anybody in the area. Anybody, get in there. Yeah, so you have Maryland State Police, Virginia State Police, MPD, FBI, ATF, all of these different agencies rushing to the Capitol to help. And if they don't know each other, if they can't say, hey, Joe, how are you? How are you doing, Bill? And yeah. you know, shake hands and high five and say, you know, hey, that was great training last week. Good seeing you. Let's get to work now the way we did it last week. Right. It makes it very, very difficult to complete an operation, even if it's just clearing the capital of protesters. It's very difficult to operate with people that you're not familiar with. Right. You know, there's, there's, I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, the theory of, of there's assets, liabilities, and unknowns. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Assets are, you know, you and I have been on a team together for 12 years. We've trained a thousand hours together. I've seen you on the range. You've seen me on the range. We each trust each other's capabilities. We're right. both assets to each other. Right. Now, another guy steps up and he's got tactical gear on. He's got the, you know, sidearm. He's got a weapon slung. And Cargo he looks pants. In, but is he? <laughs> so we, right. we look at him and we say, is that Tackmeyer or whatever the guy from the police academy movies, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, 
is he an unknown or is he an asset? Worst case, he's a liability. And right. so, you know, he's all gung-ho and saying the, you know, throwing all the right language. Out. You can clearly see this guy is not who he says he is. <laughs> and he's a liability. The problem with a liability is now I got to worry about a liability while I'm dealing with a threat. And right. so that's why whenever you can develop assets, and that means working with other people that are in the same field you are in the same general geographic area you are, develop all of those relationships so you're each an asset to each other. It makes things like what happened on Capitol Hill today so much easier to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. Long-winded answer, and I apologize. <laughs> 37 minutes answering that question. <laughs> no, it's good. I mean, these are really, I mean, we're getting so much more out of the question than what I asked, you know, so it's good. I'm sure everyone's enjoying it. I'm learning a lot, man. That's good stuff. And it sounds like you guys traveled a whole bunch, man. You got to do some cool, like, you know, high speed stuff, you know, with different agencies and we're yep. all over the place. I mean, that's outstanding. That that's great. Go. I can't complain about that. Yeah. Yeah, man. Okay. Thoughts on being called the best terrorist hunter by Esquire magazine in 2011. Yeah, they, how'd that happen? What's up with that? I, I it was actually my buddy that was the best terrorist hunter. I they considered me also an excellent terrorist hunter. But okay, I would okay. say that in comparison to my buddy, yeah, um, who literally is and has been the top terrorist hunter probably ever in history. Just an incredible guy that he's a foreign national. We were in his country, okay, in his country, and it's you know talk about assets and liabilities. So we would travel overseas routinely and we would work cases, whether it's in East Africa or the Middle East, uh, you know, I, I don't know how many countries in Africa and the Middle East, 10 or 12 countries that I've worked in. And it, the important thing is situational awareness. I don't care where you are in the world. You know, if I'm a yeah. cop in St. Louis and you, you're coming into St. Louis to do a protection detail, if you don't have situational awareness of what the situation and threats are on the ground in St. Louis, you're ineffective at your job. It's just right. reality. And right. so you always want to develop that situational awareness. And it was something I learned from being a cop. And then when I was an FBI agent and I would deploy overseas, I always wanted to establish immediate connection to somebody with situational awareness on the ground that knows where I'm operating, can know the good guys, the bad guys, the culture. Right. Because there's a lot of different considerations you have to take into mind when you're somewhere. You don't want to offend people you're trying to get information from or help. Right. And, and that's, it's critical. And so when I got to Iraq, I established a relationship my first day on the ground there. This is early in the war in 2004, met a guy um, and uh, he spoke English, which was critical because my Arabic is three words and none of them matter. It's like, thank you and water, I can say. <laughs> we're in Iraq at the same time. Yeah, oh, we're you're there in 04? Yeah, yeah. yes sir. January well, 05, actually, 05. I went to boot okay. camp in 04, October 04. Okay, I was uh, I was uh, there January through April or, yeah, I think late April and then June or July again, or July and August, I think. In, uh, in and again, uh, for all of 07. But uh, so when I met this guy, he spoke my language, he spoke his language. Okay, good. Now, he's, now I have a translator, not only for the language, but for the culture. Right. Because... One of the things most Americans, when we get over there, we get into a theater of war and we have objectives, but it's not always possible to fulfill our objectives because we don't know how to do things there. And he does. 
And so this guy had, and when I say cultural knowledge, you know, like if we're, we're looking for some guy that did a bombing and we get an informant that's going to give us a little bit of information, doesn't really know who the guy is, but he knows his nom de guerre, you know, Abu Hamza. Right, right, right. Those guys literally in the, picking a war name, a nom de guerre, they pick something that brags about who they really are and where they're from. And we don't always see that. We see, uh, you know, Miramal Kamzi. We, we see we see names. like the same kind of name. Like we're just like, yeah. okay, it's one of those names. It's like, one of those names, yeah. Abu but, something. <laughs> what it right. means is like Abu is, is known as, um, it's known as, well, it's, it's the translation is it's father of. Okay. That's really what it means. It's a kunya is what they what it's called, where it's a it's a title saying, I am the father of. So Abu Hamza is saying, I am the father of Hamza. And usually they follow that with something like Al-Takriti, like means I am the father of Hamza and I am from Tikrit. Okay. So Abu Hamza Al-Takriti would be there's a guy who has a son named Hamza from Tikrit, who's a terrorist leader. So now a little roadmap. Me, as an American, I don't know what any of that means. It doesn't mean anything. Right. To me. If you said, hey, that's Byron from Cleveland. All right. right. There might be a few Byrons in Cleveland. But if that's Byron that has a son named Hamza that lives in Cleveland that does this. Now I've got a little bit more information. So yeah. I've got something I can start looking at. And so I, I take this local Iraqi cop and he can immediately take a name and say, OK, this is the neighborhood he's going to be from. Well, how do you know that? Well, because it's a, if he's. You know, it's a Shia town and he's a Sunni based on this name. And the fact that his son is named Hamza, that means he probably goes to this mosque because he worships this. Okay. And wow, you get all that information from that. Yeah. Let's go look there. And sure enough, and this guy would pop out information and get sources in nanoseconds. And I was like, this is the greatest cop I've ever seen. And he had never, he had never done these things under Saddam. He was a cop under Saddam, but under Saddam, it was protecting the regime. That's all they did. Right. So he always used this to protect the, the regime above him because that's what you did. That's what you did as a cop. And, and right. he never realized you could find true bad guys and put them away. He never had that opportunity. It was somebody would say something bad about Saddam. Who said that? Oh, it was Abu Hamza al-Takridi. Okay, let's go find let's him. Let's go find him. Meat grinder. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> True story. <laughs> <laughs> so, so he and I became uh, close buddies, worked together. We became best friends and he just became the most valuable asset. And, and time after time, we would, we would work cases, the FBI with the U.S. military and then other agencies, other entities within the special operations community, yeah. within the alphabet agencies, within the U.S. government, and then slowly and surely, uh, coalition entities from around the world that were also in that theater of war would be like, you know, hey, a British, the British consulate would say, we had a kidnapping today, a British citizen was just kidnapped. Can your guy help us? And so we turn to him and say, okay, this is what we know. And that guy, he's getting people back left and right, taking down terrorists. And he, he has been shot at, blown up, uh, attempted to kill. In he's been in comas more times than I've had a cold in my life. Really? Yeah, from being blown Man. up and shot and everything else. Yeah. I mean, one morning, he gets in his car, starts the car. It's outside his house. Kaboom! Bomb goes off. There's a bomb. It's underneath the car. It flips his car up onto the second story roof of his house upside down. The yeah. guy's in a coma for a month. How do you even survive that? He survived because the bomb was placed under the passenger seat 
they were expecting that because he was an important guy that he would have a driver driving him. So they put the bomb under the right side. The transmission was between the bomb and him. So the blast radius got blown around the transmission. It lifted the car up. It crushed his head when it flipped upside down. But the transmission went through his seat and crushed him against the ceiling. But no shrapnel hit him. So he wasn't blown into pieces. Most of the brissants of the explosion, the, the shattering value of the explosion, went yeah. around the transmission. So he was saved by them thinking he's so important that he's going to be in the right seat and he was in the left seat. Good Lord have mercy. When it ain't your time to go, man. <laughs> and, 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 you know, as a, as a Muslim, of course, his yeah. thing is, inshallah, you know. Yeah, inshallah. You know. God knows when I'm going to go. It's up to him. I didn't, he didn't think it was my time, so I didn't go. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Man. That's amazing. And is he, do you, have you been able to keep up with him? Is he okay? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, we, we talk regularly. He's uh, outstanding. Solid dude. We're still good friends. Uh, as a matter of fact, he has a young son that uh, I'm his godfather. I'm Catholic. Wow. He's Muslim, but his son was born. He invited me to be there. And so that made me the godfather. I didn't realize that was a formal that was thing. A thing. But, uh, it is. So honored to hold that uh, position and, and title and, uh, yeah, we're still really good friends. And he literally is the top terror hunter ever. Ever. That's outstanding. That's another great story right there. Jeez, that's amazing. What, um, that movie, yeah. That movie probably won't be Showtime, though. That'll be a different one. And that, <laughs> we're waiting for the right time to tell that one. Yeah, yeah. We got to, you know, people that be less sensitive, probably. Yeah, we had to leave some of our kind of interpreters and things like that back there. And I was worried. I, was, I mean, we were just that's worried tough. about them. There's nothing we could do, you know. Yeah. is their country yeah so really good. and most people don't realize that you know even an interpreter somebody right. like that you you become close this is somebody that you know a lot of times they're not armed right so they're going wherever you're going because they got to be there for you to talk for you and through you and they're putting themselves in absolute and utter danger yeah. in the mission and then outside the mission they're a target because they're so valuable to us. Right. And yeah. so the bad guys want them dead more than they want you dead or I. Yeah. And people don't realize that it, it, they become a part of your family and it doesn't matter where you are in the world. Mm. If they're doing that and they're helping us, you know, they, they should be taken care of and rewarded. And unfortunately they rarely are. Yeah, absolutely. No, I, I, I felt the same thing when I was over there, man, that's good stuff. What would you say? I have a question about what would it be, what was it like turning terrorists, uh, you know, flipping those guys over? Can you touch that one? Yeah, that, that uh, it was, I mean, I, I flipped a lot of criminals when I was an FBI agent. Uh, you know, as a cop, you, you talk to people, most bad guys don't give anything up. But when you're working conspiracy cases in the FBI, yeah, narcotics and other things, you usually have leverage against somebody. So when you're working a drug case and you're working your way up that chain of command, the guy below that you arrest that is guilty of all these things below him. Right. It's easy to use all that leverage to flip him over to point upward at the next layer. It's very easy. You get into a terrorist group and the, there's two different types of people that are involved in the terrorist world. You have those that are the true believers. Right. Absolutely true believers that I am Satan and right. they do anything they can to kill us, kill Satan, the great Satan America. Right. The infidels. Those true believers are very difficult, if not impossible, to flip. Right. And then there's the other guys 
that poor people. <laughs> yeah, it's poor people that hey, you know, they're going to give me fifty bucks if I dig a hole, and right. I don't know what they're putting in the hole. Yeah, they're putting an IED IED there, and it's going to blow up U.S. soldiers tomorrow. But I got to feed my family. That's an easy right. guy to pull because that guy's afraid of them as much as he is afraid of us. And he's as afraid of that IED because it might blow up his own kids. So those people were pretty easy to flip and they were considered terrorists because they're working on the side of terrorists. But in reality, it's just a guy that no different than, you know, I grew up in New York, lived in the Bronx for years, no different than some little shop owner in the yep. Bronx that mm -hmm. has to do something to support La Cosa Nostra because the mob controls that neighborhood. And if you want to stay alive and live in that neighborhood, you're going to do the things the mob wants you to do. And so yeah. there, then there's people in the middle that aren't really unknowing <clears throat> mopes and aren't really true believers, but they're somewhere in between where they, they're like gang members at that point. They're like, mm -hmm. they're like the lieutenants in La Cosa Nostra. They're not the boss. They're not the, you know, the Don, yeah. but they're underlings that work for them, knowing who they're working for and what they're doing. So those are flippable, but you got to have leverage and you got to have time because they're usually not quick flips. But we had a few really good successes in Iraq where we, we got guys that were hardcore, that fought against us, refused to, to admit anything. Um, and then we, again, with the help of the Iraqis, we used their culture to break them down. So we had one guy that uh, had these little cross swords tattooed right here on his hand, little okay. cross swords, and, and he was an executioner for Saddam. Okay. And the cross swords are infamous, the big cross swords. In yeah, Iraq. at the gate. That was a big thing for Saddam. And so this guy with these little tattoos and <clears throat> it didn't mean anything to me. It was like, he likes tattoos. So what? They're a couple of swords. And my Iraqi buddy said, nope, that means that dude worked directly for Saddam. He was a killer for Saddam. So now we know he's a hard, hard guy. Like a legit a player. Yeah. So this is not some wimp that's going to be, you know, I'm going to get in his face in an in a interrogation and break him. Right. So, uh, so I asked my buddy, all right, what's this guy going to be afraid of? And he said, embarrassment. I said, really? Wow, that's clever. I mean, every him. tough guy, you know, yeah. you don't want to be embarrassed, you know. Yeah, but a lot of tough guys said. always, yeah. You embarrass him in front of people that are below his status in life. Mm -hmm. And he won't be able to take it. And we were like, really? He said, I'm telling you. I said, okay, let's give it a shot. So he was in a detention facility that was at Al Assad Air Base. I don't know if you've spent any time out. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Time. That was like heaven. So, for us. Yeah, so the, Marines, <laughs> the Marines ran the detention facility there at Al Assad, mm -hmm. and there was a young Marine captain that was running this detention facility, which was basically a huge hangar, aircraft mm -hmm. hangar, and they didn't have any jail cells, so they just took concertina wire and strung it out, laying it out in spools down, yeah. and they created like cubicles. So each of the prisoners was in a little cubicle of concertina wire, all in one big room. They could all see each other. Right, just huddled. They did a squat down during the day. <laughs> yeah, and and they were they had a bedroll, they had a case of MREs, and they had mm. a case of water, so they could eat when they wanted to. Basically, they could sleep when they wanted to. But the Marine Corps, they they weren't allowed to hit them, touch them, beat them, do anything. But what they were allowed to do was whatever the Marines were doing, they could ask, they could mandate that they do it too. So the Marines did calisthenics every day. So the ah. Marines did calisthenics with the prisoners. 
deep okay. end bends, squats with the box of MREs, you know, all those kind of just yeah, all the hazing. I mean, working out. <laughs> and so, and Make so you sweat. we got this one big Marine that was a PT stud. Right. Said, all right, you're going to lead PT today and you're going to single that guy out, the one mm -hmm. prisoner we want to break. And you're going to bring him into the middle and you're going to make him do PT with you and you're going to embarrass him. And he's going to be so embarrassed that you're going to break him. And we're like, okay, let's do it. So the captain, this little guy was like, okay, let's go everybody PT. And he tells all the prisoners, okay, mm -hmm. you're not going to do PT right now. You're going to watch him do PT. Oh my gosh. If, His he manhood. Fails, if he fails to do what the Marine does, then he's going to sit on his box of MREs and you guys are all going to do what he couldn't do. So now this is cross swords on his tattoo. Yeah. Everybody knows who this <laughs> is. Everybody knows he was a henchman for Saddam. So wow. he outranked everybody in the prison, in the, this facility. They get him out. The, the Marine does, you know, takes two cases of MREs, is doing deep knee bends, puts him on his back, does push-ups, and has this guy mimic what he's doing. Two boxes of MREs, 20 deep knee bends, put them on your back, do push-ups. He's doing the deep knee bends, and he gets a little tipsy somehow. He's not oh, used boy. to exercise. The top box falls off. He goes quickly to pick it up and to do it again. Marine says, sit down on the box. You're done. And the guy's like, no, 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 no. Let me finish. Let me finish. You're yeah. Done. You make him sit there. Everybody else, old men, young kids, everybody else that's in this facility is now doing deep knee bends. We're doing push-ups and they, none of them drop the box. It oh, doesn't go 30 seconds before this guy's screaming, bring, bring me to the FBI. I want to talk to the FBI. Cause we had tried <laughs> to interrogate him the day before God no. Anyway. He wanted to get out of that room right then. I'm standing at the entrance with my partner and he's bring me to the FBI, bring me to the FBI. So wow. we brought him next door and we said, what's up? And he said, I'll tell you anything. And we said, why? And he said, you know, when I worked for Saddam, we would get all the information we wanted out of anybody, but we always tortured them to get it. And right. I said, yeah, well, we're not allowed to use torture. And he said, what you just did to me was far worse than any torture we've ever done. I said, he said, <laughs> I've cut people's hands off. I've you oh. know, mutilated their bodies. But what yeah. you just did to me in front of lower people, they are, they are so low compared to me. I don't deserve to be in the same facility as them. I should be in an elite prison, you know? I be, he was like bragging that he- <laughs> He was like, do you even know who I, yeah. you can't do this to me, yeah. Jake. And, yeah. and uh, so sure enough, we were like, well, tell us what's been going on. So he admitted to 19 IED attacks. Wow. Where and when. And we, I think we recovered like 93 rockets from a cache that he gave to us. So it was successful. We didn't touch him. We didn't put him in any pain other than emotional pain. Yeah, and it worked. And, and, it, and, it, and you know, it worked because my buddy knew that culture. Wow. Yeah, that's huge. That's, I mean, that's a power of understanding the culture. Yep. Um, but that's just a really awesome story, too. <laughs> that's, that's your buddy, man. Yeah. He's, he, he was, he was, he was clutch. Yeah. But if, yeah, you know, I, I went to New York with him one time and going mm -hmm. all around New York, he did not have any situational awareness. <laughs> you know, <laughs> You know, New Yorkers are different than anybody else in the in the country. In the and country, they, they act differently. They mm -hmm. they look at you differently. They talk tough. You know, and he was like thinking everybody wants to fight with him, 
And I was like, no, this is New York. This is the way people are. This is how they are. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> you got to understand. You push right back, but don't uh, don't get in the fight and don't shoot anybody if you can avoid it. Right, right. Yeah. I, I, well, I grew up, I was born in the Bahamas, but I grew up in Washington State. And I remember going to the East Coast and being in New York. And I remember being like, why is everyone so mean? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like saying hi to people. They're looking at me like, do I know you? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm like, what's going on? Yeah. It's so different. I had to learn that. It is, man. But more straightforward. Um, Let's see here. What uh, what was it like working undercover uh, against the Cali cartel? Uh, that was like, great. That, to me, that sounds mortifying. To be honest, <laughs> you yeah, know, like, it was, it was great. I, I I had a couple of excellent sources, a few actually excellent sources that were mm -hmm. connected down there. One guy from Colombia, another guy from Panama. That yeah. uh, you know, you gotta you gotta establish a rapport with the people you're working with, and even these are criminals guys have been mm -hmm. in the cartels for decades dealing yeah. mostly not dealing these were one guy was uh, primarily a middleman a money launderer for the cartel another guy was a pilot for the cartel and so uh, i spent countless hours with them developing them as sources getting them onto wow. the good side and then uh you know it became necessary to establish an alibi so i had to use those guys to create my background and uh, created a fake business based out of, of Virginia that uh, was going in and out of Columbia. And so we went down there. Um, unfortunately, most of the targets that we went after, we got here in the United States and the ones down there, a couple of the big ones ended up disappearing, being disappeared, I should say, by the by the cartel, because once we took down, you know, I talked about the pyramid structure and you're always trying yeah. to work your way up the pyramid. And we got to a certain level and all of a sudden the next level was gone. So wow. we were trying to target them, went down, uh, went down to Caracas, Venezuela for, for Carnival, Mardi Gras mm -hmm. one, one year to, to luring a guy from Colombia to uh, Caracas to take him down. And uh, in the interim, the cartel in, in, in uh, Cali realized they had a, a security threat. And uh, so the guy we were going down there to take down, they realized, if we remove this layer, we'll insulate ourselves, and that's what they did. So, Man. unfortunately, the 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 undercover that that was one case I was working that got quashed because the bad guys killed their own bad guys. And then another one, we were doing a controlled delivery. We were going to mm -hmm. do a very large controlled delivery, a plane load of of uh, cocaine from Colombia. Spent a couple months down in Bogota working that one, getting that going, and most of it was. Uh, communications by phone and and uh, other means to set it all up and I was doing it from the based out of the embassy in Bogota and then when we finally got to the point to go meet the bad guys and get this load uh, literally the day it was supposed to happen we got a call from the U.S. State Department Secretary of State said we're negotiating a new extradition treaty with the Colombian government you cannot continue your your uh, investigation you have to shut it down today so they didn't want us to do arrests and do this big undercover uh, controlled delivery because they thought it would embarrass the Colombian government at a point where they're trying to finalize a negotiation on an extradition treaty. So, you know, that was another wow. undercover thing that we worked a couple of years to build up to the final point of going in and doing the real, real fun undercover work of doing the control, right. you know, getting 10,000 uh, pounds of uh, cocaine onto a plane and meeting with the bad guys, luring some of them onto the plane with us, all that stuff we had been yeah. doing towards. 
got blown away. So we had some fun. I mean, being in Caracas yeah. was fun. Being in Bogota was fun. Being in Medellin and Cali. Sure was terrible. <laughs> Great wow. steaks. Really good steaks. They know how to grow beef. Yeah. Not just yeah. cocaine. They actually know how to have other products they're famous for. And beef is one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Man, that's uh that's it's it's a wild life to imagine doing all those things. And I mean, just the human interactions around, you know, flipping those terrorists and 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 then having those relationships overseas and then also even the undercover stuff. I'm always really interested in social dynamics. You know, what would you say? You're going to say some things about really important social dynamics. I mean, to be able to exist in that world, what would you say? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, to do undercover work, it's you're it's a con job. You're a con man. And that's that's what it is. You have to you're living a lie, but you're doing it for the right reasons, you know, and it's that's some people have a moral dilemma with that. But, you know, am I, by me lying to a bad guy, is that a bad thing? If I'm doing it to stop a crime, right, just reason, I, yeah. I think of it as a good, it's a good thing. And uh, so that's, that's, that's something some people can't get past. So, you know, socially and, and morally and ethically, mm-hmm. you know, and, and some people disagree with the war on drugs to begin with together right and and you know a lot of people talk about let's just legalize all drugs but they don't realize the ramifications of what that means and they don't realize that you know you're you're not taking the bad elements out of the equation necessarily if you legalize everything because what happens when they say okay cocaine and heroin are legal everywhere well it's not like the guy that works nine to five at uh, you know Wells Fargo Bank in the office is going to be great at work every day with your money and my money. He's totally trustworthy, but at night, good guy, he you know. cocaine and shoots up heroin. But he's back at work at the bank at night. Jitterbugging around, a lot of energy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so it's like, well, wait a minute, what does that mean when you say legalize right. all drugs? Because are you then saying the people that are most vulnerable on the street? that use drugs are then legally using drugs. And if they are on the street, where are they getting the money to get the drugs they want to use? So you say, okay, well, the state has to give it to them free. All right, so now you're going to say, we're going to give them their free heroin. So how much heroin does Byron need? And how much heroin does Tim need? Who decides that? Because if you say, Tim and Byron are going to get the same amount of heroin, you're going to get you know a quarter gram of heroin a week, and that's it. Okay, well, what if I want a gram of heroin this week? Am I now going to become a criminal? Do I beg the state? Do I petition the court to get an extra three quarters of a gram of heroin so I can have the heroin I want? How does this process work if it's legal? Are there stores that are selling heroin? If so, are they open 24 hours? Because if I want my fix at 3 a.m., I'm coming through the front window of your store. Get my stuff. So the logistics of... Uh, that whole thought process, I don't think a lot of people think through. Now, right. you know, they're legalizing marijuana in a lot of places, and you got mm-hmm. dispensaries and stores all over the place in the states. Right. And okay, that's one thing. People can grow their own marijuana at home too, but you can't really grow your own poppies and produce your own heroin on your own for personal use. It's not generally Doable, an easy thing to really. do. Yeah. <laughs> like black tar heroin versus, you know, the other types. How do you, what's the, what's the prescription for that? How do you go about getting the yeah. drug you want in the, in the 
formulation you'd want it. And, and I don't, I don't understand if, I don't know that there's anybody that's ever thought that process all the way through to the point that we're ready to start saying it. But I know the state of Oregon in this past election in November legalized a lot of hard drugs. Really? So still illegal on the federal level, but I think it was Oregon. It was either Oregon or Washington state legalized like heroin, cocaine for personal use. And so really? now you're taking something that is only contraband. There's right. no legal entity for you to get your heroin. It's not like you're going to have a 7-Eleven hey, can I have uh, two monsters and, uh, and, a, and a couple of rocks of cocaine, please? So where do you get those drugs? You have to interact with criminal enterprises in order to get the drugs that are now legal in your state. So I, again, I don't think anybody thought through these things. They just thought, you know, let's decriminalize it. Well, now what? What's the next step? Well, and so imagine think, the addiction component to that is yeah. just going to skyrocket. People that wouldn't even come in contact with it are going to get snatched up by that stuff. And and again, Byron, go back to the Wells Fargo banker model. And yeah. I don't mean to disparage Wells Fargo as a bank. I just I threw out a name. But what I'm right. saying is a guy that has a nine to five legitimate job that all of a sudden gets hooked on heroin. Yeah. It's very hard to keep that nine to five job. You know, look at all the celebrities that have gone through rehab over and over and over again that have they have the wealth to be able to get away with buying the amount of drugs they want. And most of them, it's just a a slow tank drive down off a cliff or it's the immediate push off a cliff where their lives, you know, whether it's um, Phoenix. uh, What's his name? uh, Yeah, we know. I know who you're talking about. (laughs) That was caught. Well, and it's it's and they have all the assets in the world not to be not to fail. You yeah. know, not yet, to fail. And yet, they still and yet they do, they die. I mean, you know, yeah. some of them, many of them die, have heart attacks, get found in strip clubs and stuff. <laughs> like the one that we were talking about. It's, uh, no, I, I think it's a horrible idea. And then you have all those people that, you know, are doing drugs as a coping mechanism. And, and then that component of folks, I mean, it's just bleak. It doesn't um, really help anybody to say, okay, you know, you're slowly killing yourself with these drugs. Is yeah. it really what we want to say to somebody who's crying for help? Right. That instead of giving you the help, we're going to give you the suicide method that you're dying for. Which you, know, you will I, overdose I or you'll, yeah, yeah. you'll abuse it's, and die. It's, it's literally impossible to satiate that appetite. And for people that haven't seen the underworld of drugs, you know, like I watched a college girl get arrested the first time she tried crack cocaine. She was at a party. She tried crack. She got arrested. She didn't tell her parents she got arrested. She ended up dropping out of school and becoming addicted to crack. And she went from being like a 19 year old, very pretty young college co-ed to six months later, she's a prostitute on the streets, addicted to crack, emaciated. Her teeth are falling out, sores all over her face. She's doing crack. She's doing meth. Everything. Her life. I don't know. I don't know that she lived beyond that year, but, but she went downhill so fast. And that's what we're saying to people. Yeah. You right. know, that's the end result, but if you want to do it, we're going to help you do it. I just think that's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. Yeah, man. What would you say about the 19, the, the nine 11 crash into the Pentagon? I heard that you were there for, you know, you're one of the first people on the scene for that. Well, how would you describe that scene? Is it a conspiracy? Oh. <laughs> I don't know. What would you say about the experience? Well, there's, there's a lot of conspiracies. Uh, actually, right. one of my partners was one of the first people on scene. I had a couple of wow. friends that were there right away. I got there a little while later. I was actually training with SEAL Team 6 when the planes hit. 
the World wow. Trade Center where the first plane hit. And then we were on our way north to New York when the plane hit the Pentagon and then we diverted and went to the Pentagon. So we got there pretty wow. soon after, but it was, a, it was a plume of black smoke. And when I got there, um, we immediately got on the ground and there were, we were still trying to pull people out. There were a lot of survivors, some ambulatory on foot that we were helping get out. Other people, obviously, that uh, had either died or were mortally or very badly wounded. And that, so that was the primary mission is save lives. And then um, the risk became so great. The fires were burning. Firefighters were there working on that. And so the mission kind of changes. We can't just let anybody go in willy nilly to try and save people because they might get trapped or they might become uh, in danger themselves. And so it became much more of a specific mission. Okay, this group prepared with PPE is gonna go in and do the life-saving mission, working with firefighters and engineers to make sure the building's stable. And then we became responsible for segregating witnesses so we could get witness statements and also protecting evidence. And one of the first things I noticed was there were a whole crowd of people forming out the outside of perimeter of the Pentagon grounds, and they were grabbing souvenirs, pieces of the plane primarily. Right. Uh, there were a lot of uh, American Airlines. I, I'm a frequent flyer on American Airlines, so I recognized their logo and it was all over the grounds out there. And when, when the plane hit, it kind of skipped off the ground, hit the building. One wing was up a little bit and it hit very low in the building. And you could see the wing outline, the, the width of the wingspan had, had taken out the lowest level of the Pentagon. The tail snapped off and hit high on the fifth or fourth or fifth floor. Uh, so the facade up high was damaged with the outline of the tail of the plane. And wow. then you saw plane parts because once it exploded, uh, like diesel, diesel fuel, kerosene, and jet A fuel are all very similar uh, components. They're, they're, okay. they're a very similar mixture. Uh, generally, gasoline is very, very volatile. So that means it evaporates very quickly and the, the vapors are what are really explosive. Uh, with jet fuel, jet A, like with diesel and kerosene, it really needs compression in order to be Combustible. somewhat explosive. Yeah. Uh, to be combustible to burn and also to to cause the, the, you know, the, the explosion that occurs in like in a diesel engine, you know, a diesel engine works differently than a gas engine and a gas engine, uh, the gas gets compressed, the spark goes off and that spark ignites, it pushes the piston down and that's how the engine turns. In an aircraft, you have a similar setup the the engine, because it's at altitude, it has to work at different altitudes operates a little differently than a conventional engine, which is why the formulation is closer to a diesel engine really than a than a gasoline engine, but you have okay. thousands and thousands of pounds of aviation fuel on the aircraft. And so when it impacts the building, the fuel is compressed. So it's just like it would be inside the cylinder of an automobile where the, it's compressed, the, the, the liquid is compressed, the gases are compressed upon impact, and then an ignition source is needed. And clearly, when you have a plane impacting a building, you have ignition sources. You have sparks and everything else. You have flames. And that creates the fireball and explosion. And so when that explosion happens, the plane is moving forward at 600 miles an hour. So it's decimating the building as it's going through the layers of the Pentagon. And it literally forms a powerful gas uh, plunger ahead of the fuselage, that's exactly the size of the fuselage. So literally the fuselage is gone. It's been broken up two or three layers into the Pentagon. And by the fourth layer, it's just a hole blown through a three layer brick wall. 
the exact diameter of the fuselage, but the fuselage is no, is no longer there. There's no parts wow. of the fuselage left. So that's the plunger effect. Then the other thing is once that fireball explodes inside the building, it sends parts of the airplane backwards. So the rear half of the air, airplane from the wings where the primary fuel tanks are, that part goes backwards or pieces of it. And it's yeah. blown into thousands and thousands of little pieces. All of those pieces are scattered all around the ground outside. So we literally had to get our SWAT team out there to, to set up a, a line and start marking off where the evidence fields were so we could, because we like to document everything we find, where we find it. And generally we like to leave evidence in place for an evidence collection team to fully document. But because we had the risk of people stealing parts and everything else, moving things that we had yeah. to start worrying about that sooner than we normally would have. On, on major crime scenes like that, the first thing is always preservation of life. Mm -hmm. And then the next step would be preservation of evidence. evidence. We had to combine those two steps kind of early at the, at the Pentagon, the World Trade Center was a different scene entirely because the building completely collapsed, but or the buildings. But uh, so in, in the Pentagon, uh, you had so many people, no survivors on the plane, obviously, but we had many survivors within the Pentagon, a lot who were wounded, some with burn uh, damage, others with just, you know, collapse damage. People were in their office. Thankfully, there was far fewer in that part of the building because of the construction that was being done there at the time. So you know, what happened when we watched the, um, the footage of the air traffic control, we had, uh, FBI has access to air traffic control, uh, there, everything we have, the, the functionality in our headquarters and in our command post to look at flights around the world. And, uh, we looked at footage later and the plane had come in on the far side of the Pentagon along the Pen the, uh, Potomac river, which okay. is the flight path going to, Reagan National Airport, which is a very short distance from the Pentagon. That's the normal flight path. And they came in and tried to hit that side of the building, but they were coming too fast and they couldn't drop fast enough because their speed, their airspeed was too great. And yeah. so you know, the buoyancy of the aircraft has to do with the speed. You drop the speed enough and it drops out of the sky. If you get down to yeah. two miles an hour, you're falling out of the sky. But when you're going 600 miles an hour and trying to get lower and lower, the buoyancy of the wings isn't allowing you to do that. So they, they're trying to hit the Pentagon and they missed the biggest building in the world and they missed it on the first pass. So they went wow. north, they went south then, came around, looped around. And I know in some of the conspiracy videos you see online and some of the real lunatic stuff that's been out there, yeah. they said there's no witnesses to a plane hitting the Pentagon. No witness. <laughs> None. Well, other than the 5,000 or so that were interviewed over yeah. that day and the, and the successive uh, couple of weeks, they're probably right. There were no witnesses. There's a, there's a Sheraton Hotel at the top of the hill. Yeah. There was the Pentagon, then the next building up on the hill was the Navy Annex, as it was known. Then there was a Sheraton Hotel. And in the Sheraton Hotel, you can imagine there's a there's a um, airport about two miles away. So okay. planes come in low along the river. You're two miles from the river or a mile or so from the river. So you hear those planes coming in and landing and yeah. taking off all the time. What you don't hear is a plane going 600 miles an hour flying 50 feet above the roof of your hotel. And that's the plane circling around to come back and hit the other side, the basically the Western side of the Southwestern side of the Pentagon where the actual impact took place. So 
those people rush to their windows as this plane crosses over, and then they see it loop around and crash into the Pentagon. I mean, we had one cab driver, um, yeah. guy from Africa, that is driving a cab, Washington, D.C. He's coming across the 14th Street Bridge. He's on uh, 14th Street Bridge, runs into 395, one of the main thoroughfares that cuts through D.C., right. going southbound. And sure enough, here comes this plane down really low. It hits a lamppost on the highway he's on and drives the lamppost through his windshield. So he screeches to a stop because the plane almost clips his cab, drives a lamppost through the windshield of his cab. Now, is that guy a witness to a plane hitting the Pentagon? It's it's the, the last thing in the world <laughs> he can ever forget. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. The entire lamppost coming through the, the windshield of his car He's looking at this plane and just watches it. And 300 yards to his right, it crashes into the Pentagon. We have other guys, like for instance, there was a guy, uh, there's a helipad about maybe 75 yards from the point of impact, 75 to 100 yards from the point of impact in the grassy area at the mm -hmm. Pentagon. There's a guy that's getting onto his motorcycle. He has a kickstart motorcycle and it's parked right in the middle of this helipad. He gets on his motorcycle and he looks to his right and there's a guy lighting a cigarette about to smoke. And he's just about to say to the guy, that's going to kill you for some reason. Yeah. And he hears a roar right as he starts his motorcycle. He hears a really loud roar and it's like way louder than his motorcycle. Yeah. He turns to his left and hears the plane coming right at him. It's maybe a hundred yards from him at wow. coming at 600 miles an hour. Thankfully, he is able to let go of the clutch and hit the gas, and he gets out under the wing on his motorcycle, and wow. he looks back, and the guy that just lit his cigarette is no Gone. longer there. Is that a Jeez. witness to the plane hitting the Pentagon? So okay. when you talk to these people and hear <laughs> right, some of these right, stories, right. you look at loose change and some of those conspiracy theories online that it was a missile, there was no plane, no witnesses. Yeah. Those are all lies, ridiculous lies. Then you have yeah. the, you know, the Pulitzer Prize winning and, and uh, Nobel Prize winning scientific experts like Rosie O'Donnell saying that, that in the history of humanity, steel has never melted in a fire. Right, right. I don't know what she thinks steel is other than <laughs> iron ore that's melted in a fire, in a fire. And formed into steel. <laughs> right, right. Which then formed continuously with fire. Right. I don't right, know what right. she thinks welding is, but it's actually yeah. melting steel. So, I mean, th those lunatic things. And, and when you have you right. have a captive right. audience, young kids or whatever going on the internet and, they, mm -hmm. and it's, it's so well made and the video is, it's glossy and it just seems like it's so convincing. Good sound effects. They got people in, in doctor outfits talking to you, yeah. <laughs> and scientist and outfits talking to you. One of the keys to, to making a movie or a TV show, one of the keys in mm -hmm. the entertainment industry is that there's two real things. You have to, you have to, get somebody to dis suspend disbelief because you okay. have a natural disbelief. I just told you a few stories. You have yeah. to suspend disbelief to believe that I'm actually in Iraq doing these things. Is it yeah. reasonable to suspend that disbelief? Yeah, it probably yeah. is. Okay. Yeah. You read about me in a magazine, you know, there's probably some truth to it. So right. there, you have to suspend disbelief. So we, whether we're watching a Marvel movie or a documentary, you have to suspend disbelief to right. believe what's being said. And then the other thing is it's kind of wish fulfillment where you kind of want what you feel to be true at the end of the movie, whether it's the hero's journey and you want to feel like that really is the hero. That's a great guy. And you're like, yeah, yeah. yeah. You see the movie once upon a time yeah. in Hollywood. Uh, 
No, I, oh, or at least I'm not remembering it right now. Okay, let's right, check it out. A, a Quentin Tarantino movie came out last year. I think it was 2019. It mm-hmm. might have been 2018, um, but the last couple of years. But, you know, I, I don't want to give anything away in that movie, but typically in a movie, you have some form of wish fulfillment in the end. And mm-hmm. that's what makes you, you know, feel great walking out of the theater. And mm-hmm. so when you're watching a movie like Loose Change or one of these conspiracy documentaries, right? Well, conspiracy documentary. You have to suspend disbelief, right? And then continually suspend it and suspend it. And then it becomes disbelief and wish fulfillment kind of mixed together where you're like i want it to be true because it's so cool to think that this is really happening not that you think it's a good thing but the fact that you think that dick cheney and george bush were crawling around in the world trade center in the middle of the night at some point in time putting explosives in there (laughs) and putting three miles of debt cord to set up 9-11 you the, the it's just a fa- it's a beautiful fantasy type of thing. Yeah, it's like wow, I can't believe they're that determined. George Bush yeah. literally on his hands and knees, really <laughs> to put the TNT and high explosives in there to blow. How? Because you're saying <laughs> it was explosives that took down the building. Who put right. the explosives there? And did not the Lehman Brothers employees that are working till midnight every night doing the stock portfolios of billionaires and millionaires, they're in their offices and they don't notice George Bush crawling under their desk, putting debt cord down. When did it happen? He was good. George Bush was really sneaky, man. Yeah, yeah, he was was incognito maybe. But, you know, how logistically could it be the conspiracy they say it is? Logistically, how could it have been carried out? And, you know, and I worked hundreds of bombing like, scenes, hundreds yeah. of bombing scenes around different countries, different places in the world, in Bosnia, as I said, in the Middle East and Africa, yeah. and even the United States. And the the one common denominator with, with bombings, IEDs, whether it's military, military ordinance that's turned into an IED or mm-hmm. it's a totally man-made thing, right. is there had to be something they built. There had to be devices, pieces of the device left over, nothing nothing really disappears in an explosion. It all just gets realigned, moved around and made smaller, but it's usually there. So Hmm. that's why we were able to reconstruct an airplane at both crime scenes. We were able to put together airplane parts at all three crime scenes, also at at Shanksville. And we do that, you know, TWA Flight 800, same thing. We're able to reconstruct the airplane. And on TWA Flight 800, it's figuring out whether that plane flying over Long Island Sound was shot down by a missile or blown up from internal. And it's very easy to determine because explosives don't disappear. The residue of an explosion remains. It always remains. And so chemical analysis tells you what blew up here. Also, you look at blast effects. So right. I, I used the word earlier, brissance. Brissance, when you have an explosive, the brissance is the shattering effect of an explosive. Okay. So you saw at the Capitol today, there were a couple of pipe bombs placed near Republican National Committee headquarters near Capitol Hill, allegedly mm-hmm. today. And from the photographs I saw, they were pipes with, you know, uh, cast iron pipe with caps at both ends. And it looked like, a, a, like an egg timer on it. The reason a pipe bomb is used as an explosive or as a containment vessel is because it's a low explosive. So like black powder. Yeah. So you've got a gun. Some cheap, some slow. Yeah. So a uh, black powder actually is not an explosive. It's a, it's a, it's a rapidly burning chemical. So right. what happens in your gun is you have a, a shell casing that's filled with gunpowder and then it's capped with a bullet. So that mm-hmm. becomes a containment vessel, the same as a pipe bomb. 
Right. You stick that into a chamber of a gun, and now it's trapped in the in the barrel, in the chamber, trapped at the end by the breech face. And then you hit the primer on it that explodes the primer, which is high explosive. And then the gas that comes from the expanding, burning black powder overcomes the containment vessel. It becomes too powerful and the bullet gets forced out and down the barrel. So that's how a gun works. A pipe bomb is the same principle. It's a pipe capped at both ends where you have black powder or some similar substance in it. And that black powder, once it gets ignited through a fuse or an electronic ignition source, burns. And it doesn't burn as fast as an explosion. It burns very rapidly. And that rapid burning creates expanding gases. Those expanding gases eventually overcome the vessel and they blow the pipe bomb up and the pipe bomb becomes shrapnel to cause damage. And so the explosive will be on every piece of that pipe bomb. It will be all over the area where the explosion took place. Pieces of the pipe bomb will be all over. So that device, if it blows up, is still very easy to identify. I can tell you what it looked like based on the components we find there. And so all of these conspiracy theories deal with irrationality and the lack of reality because there's no devices found, there's no components found. TWA 800, there's no implosion where a, a missile comes up and penetrates the fuselage, explodes, and then explodes out. You're going to have a completely different blast radius and everything else. What you do have is everything blowing out, everything, including where the initial spark was yeah. and where the explosion moves through the tank and it, and it moves at a rapid pace, just like inside the contained pipe bomb. So, you know, we look at all these things and, you know, I'm not the, I'm, I'm a post-blast investigator, but I'm not a bomb expert. We have lots of those hundred pound brains that work at Quantico and Huntsville, Alabama. Yeah. And this is all they do. We have some of the top scientists in the world when it comes to explosives. The FBI is the only body in the United States that can certify bomb technicians. So oh, I know that. You know, yeah, so every bomb technician in America, whether a small town police department, military, whatever, they're trained by the FBI. The FBI in Huntsville, Alabama, trains bomb techs. And there's a reason for that, because the FBI is the, is the agency responsible for bomb investigations. And so every bomb tech that's anywhere in the United States all has the same basic knowledge and skill that the FBI wants them to have so that we can all work together on these investigations. So, you know, it's, it's also... A, a slap in the face and an affront to the thousands of good investigators, cops, first responders, military, and everyone else that's, that worked 9-11, uh, trying to rescue people at the Pentagon, trying to rescue people in Shanksville, trying to rescue people at the World Trade Center, and working those investigations to say to them, you're all liars, there were no planes, it's all a vast conspiracy, and George Bush was under my desk yesterday putting the bombs. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, it's great. It's absolutely, yeah, man. No, that's uh, that was like three or four classes rolled up into one. We got bomb, we got pipe bomb, we got the way bullets work. That's awesome, man. That's good. Hey, to I go. also like, look at this plaque right here, man. Nuclear emergency search team. I can talk nuclear weapons too, but that's that'll be a classified conversation. Wow. I think. Yeah, right. No, that's amazing, man. That There was so much there. That's outstanding. Um, let's see a few closing questions. What would you, what advice would you have for someone who wants to live a life uh, like yours of a protector and doing all these amazing things? What, what would you tell them? Well, you got to, uh, you got to be motivated because, uh, uh, you know, it's something I've told my kids their whole lives. Nothing worthwhile is ever cheap or easy. 
And that's yes. true in every aspect of life. I don't right. care if it's a job, a relationship, you know, the person you want to marry, if it's easy mm -hmm. and they say yes, the first time you ask them, then it's probably not going to be a worthwhile marriage because they don't take it seriously. You know, they got to evaluate you and you have to evaluate them. It's tough. Relationships are tough. I don't care. Oh, yeah. I don't care if it's a business relationship, a personal relationship, a marriage, a friendship, they all take work. And if you want a career, if you want a varied career, yeah, you got to work at it. And, you know, to get into the FBI, it's very competitive. It's one of the greatest jobs probably in the world, because unlike, you know, I have a lot of friends in the DEA, my next door neighbor's a DEA agent, a lot of, gut, a lot of good friends there, Secret Service, ATF, a lot of agencies. But the FBI is the broadest investigative agency in the United States and possibly in the world. 300 and some odd different types of, of uh, crimes are investigated by the FBI across a broad spectrum from financial crimes to, you know, welfare fraud to Medicare, medical crimes, uh, dealing with terrorism, dealing with espionage. There's so many different things that an FBI agent can do. So you can, you can start in the, like I, I said, I worked international narcotics. I'm chasing the Cali cartel. Next thing you know, I'm chasing Al Qaeda. Those yeah. are two completely different worlds, but really they're not that different. Um, but, you know, so you can, you're not cornered with one thing. You're working in the DEA, you're not going to get to chase espionage guys. You're not chasing terrorists. You're chasing people involved in the drug world. And that can be great. You can do it in right. different parts of the world. It's exciting. It's fun, but it's, it's pretty linear. It's, it's very, yeah. World. So, you know, think about what you want to do, research it, talk to people mm -hmm. that have done it and figure out if that's for you and if you're willing to put in what it takes to do it and not just do it, but do it well. Because there's a lot of people in every profession in yours and in mine that it's just a job to them. Mm -hmm. And and I think especially, you know, your line of work, people's lives are in danger and you're right. supposed to take that danger away. Yeah. And that takes dedication, motivation, preparation, planning and attention yeah. to detail. Absolutely. All of those things. And literally every good career takes those things, but not everybody puts them all in. You know, we, 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 we hear a lot, a lot of disparaging talk, especially this past year about mm. law enforcement and yeah. you know, all cops are bastards and all that nonsense. And uh, the problem with that is, yeah, there's some bad apples. There right. is every walk of life. There's no way that we'll ever make it impossible to, to or make it possible to keep all bad apples out of any career, let alone law enforcement. Yeah, any group of humans. <laughs> yeah, because human you know. beings are flawed. They all are. Right. Mm -hmm. um, the thing is that the medical profession, according to Johns Hopkins in a study done in the last few years, has is responsible for 250,000 deaths a year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> malpractice and medical mistakes. It's like yeah. top five causes of death in I think it's the, the number States. two cause like, of death like in America. like two or three, yeah. <laughs> so think about that. Now, does that mean you're not going to go to a doctor when your appendix rush, ruptures or right. you break a bone? You're not going to a hospital to get it set? No, because it's an acceptable risk. It's not a good risk, but you have to accept some risk because they're human beings and they make mistakes just like you and I do. But right. they make more mistakes than a lot of other fields and their mistakes can cost you your life. Yeah. So that's, that's sad, but it's reality. Now, does that mean I hate medical professionals? No, but why are law enforcement singled out when 
Law enforcement in the year 2015 had 53 million interactions with the public. 53 million interviews, arrests, takedowns. Opportunities for things to go good or bad. <laughs> exactly. 53 million times. And of those, 1,009 people lost their lives at the hands of law enforcement. Of those wow. 1,009, all but 26 or 27 were deemed justifiable. So there were shootings by cops that were deemed justifiable. There was a threat. The person was armed. The person tried to kill the cop or kill another person in 990 or so of those cases, 987, something like that. Wow. And so what we're, what we're down to is 27 people in that year, I think it was 15 in 2019, yep. died under questionable or absolutely wrong circumstances. You know, yeah. George Floyd dying under the knee of Derek Chauvin was absolutely unjustified wrong circumstance. If, you know, the, the whole fentanyl mix in there, that may have played a part, but still keeping your knee on a man's neck for eight or nine minutes when he's not violent, it's not necessary. A I put my knee on people's It's a little extra. Yeah, and it's so yeah. it's just, There's a little, yeah, you, a little extra there. But they were yeah. guys that just killed somebody, or just tried to kill somebody, and right. they're violently fighting and we're trying to gain control. And when, once, once we gain control, my knee's off their there's neck. There's a moment, yeah. Yeah, but, but that... Just I'm just looking at that, just saying the absolute big, big picture, far away, wrong. Mm, right. Okay, that happens 15 to 30 times a year out of 53 million interactions. Million with an M, yeah. It's, Why it's, are yeah. we looking at cops as being bastards and right. doctors and first responders are heroes when they're killing 250 times as many people as cops kill in every given year? And of those 250 times, 98, 98, 9% of theirs are not right. justified, whereas cops are. So I just, and I'm not, and I'm not pointing a finger at the medical profession. My father-in-law is a doctor. My mother-in-law right. is a nurse. My mother was a nurse. My sisters are both yeah, nurses. People, good people, good hearts noble profession. on both sides. Yeah, exactly. But we can't take another noble profession, law enforcement, where most people, it's a, it's a way to serve. It literally is a way to serve and protect. Right. And that was the first word you used was about protection you know, safeguarding, right. sheepdogs. Yeah. And that's what most cops are. There are some that it's just a job for them. It's the, it's their right. nine to five. And maybe they shouldn't be in the profession. I'd be rather, I'd rather they weren't because I, I consider it a vocation. And right. I think if you consider your job a vocation where this is what I want to do and I'm going to do it the best I possibly can, that's how you're going to succeed, regardless right. of what that vocation is. So when you ask, what should people do to 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 get have a I great see. career? Follow your dreams, prepare for it because it takes preparation to do anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you're going to work on the back of a garbage truck, you got to be prepared to deal with it. The the hours, the physicality, whatever it is, you know, make it a vocation, but put your all into it, and you'll get your all out of it. That's that's what it comes down to. Outstanding. Yeah, that's, that is what, it, I mean, that's awesome. That's what it comes down to. That's good stuff. Um, what would you say about, uh, I wanted to ask you about combatics real quick. Okay. You know, that, uh, that cause I watched that, that video you sent me, we, we're going to put the clip inside the, uh, the show notes, but it was good, man. And I, you know, I'm kind of, I'm a skimmer when it comes to things, you know, so I like kind of watch a few minutes, but I like stopped and watched the whole 20 minute video because <laughs> it was really entertaining, actually. Did you watch the one with Logan Paul? 
Yeah, yeah, the YouTuber that that yeah. boxed uh, that basketball player a while ago with the Tyson. Yeah. Uh, so so Combatics is uh, you know I was a SWAT team leader. I was a cop. Uh, I was an FBI agent. I've been shooting firearms for thirty years or more. I've had a gun on my hip for every day for the past uh, close to thirty years, and uh, I train a lot. And uh, I never ever liked any training facility I ever trained at. And I've trained. <laughs> and you were at the best one. Sports. You were just telling us. <laughs> yeah, we had the best ranges. But here's what here's what everything was oriented towards. The targets were all this high, right? Mm -hmm. They were at my eye level or my shoulder level. Always facing a target, moving laterally or moving forward and back from a target, flat ground. Now, right. even in a shooting house that had stairways stairs was the the most dangerous thing you encountered but then you're back on a flat floor right so we talked about conspiracies earlier there are some conspiracies that the earth is flat i do not i do not uh, <laughs> think the earth is flat i believe it's a right. round irregularly shaped odd hills dales valleys peaks and so i always wanted to create a training environment that reflected the real world right. i had been when i was a cop in a couple of shootouts where I was in a running shootout one time chasing a kid that was shooting back at me, running between houses, jumping over hedges, running down driveways, climbing were you, over fences. Were fence. you able to get in your weaver stance? Was, did you go isosceles nope. on a bunch? There was no weaver. There was no isosceles. None of it, right? There was no target here because he was up there. He was down yeah. here. He was over there all over the place. Yeah. Um, I had another shootout where five guys jumped out of a car shooting at me and they ran in different directions. And I had to jump over about a five and a half foot hedge while I'm being shot at. Then I had to climb down a stairway, had to run up another stairway, had to climb a 10 foot wall at the end of an alley, all chasing <laughs> a guy that was shooting at me. And so that was firearms training, unlike I've ever had. And I yeah. say training because I survived it. I didn't die. All the bad guys were arrested in those circumstances. And so it was training for me. It was real world, but it trained me to think that why am I always shooting at a paper target at certain distances where I have a certain period of time? In the reality, right. you have no time. In a shootout, you have no time. So you have right. to get your shots off and put them accurately where they need to be to stop that threat before that threat ends your life or somebody else's life. So I created combatics, combat tactics training on Instagram mm -hmm. or combatics. And uh, it's a live fire, 3D, three-dimensional uh, obstacle course. And it's very unique. We primarily allow tactical units to use it. Uh, we had JSOC out here a couple of weeks ago doing an event, about 50 operators shooting, running, gunning, doing the obstacles. Um, and I, as you mentioned, I had Logan Paul out uh, about a year ago, year ago this week. Yeah. And uh, he likes to accept challenges, most challenges are things that are kind of staged for him. And I told him, if you come to our place, nothing's going to be staged. It's going to be real. You're going to have to deal with everything. I trained him for about three weeks on gun handling, safety, and everything else to make sure I got all that out of the way because I right. didn't want any of this, you know? Yeah. 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 We didn't want any of that. So I had to get yeah. him safe. So mm -hmm. I worked with him extensively, got him safe with a gun, then brought him out. I have a team of, investig of uh, former investigators from elite federal agencies and from elite military units, a uh, couple of buddies, one guy from Australian federal police, another DEA agent and a uh, SEAL Team 6 guy that are instructors. Yeah. And so we all came together, ran Logan and a couple of his, his pals through uh, a few days of uh, 
pretty intense, intense stuff. Training, man. And, uh, <laughs> some, of, some of it he loved, most of it he despised, and he, he came out a different man. And he he published a video online called uh, "I Survived a 72-Hour Military Training Course." I think is what the title of the video yeah, is. Yeah, I got like it right eight here. And a half million people have seen it. And it's, uh, it's instructive because it shows that, as I mentioned just a minute ago about nothing in w worthwhile in life is ever cheap or easy. And yeah. he thought it was just going to be a cheap, fun stunt. And by the time the three days were over, he, he thought he learned some valuable lessons and he, he felt like it really changed him as a person to go through it because it was something he could be proud of. I mean, I, like I said, I had JSOC out here. I have SWAT teams out here all the time, FBI, local police, state police. And these are guys that are generally in great shape. They carry a gun for a living. It's important yeah. to them. And they love the, this training environment because it's totally unlike anything they've ever done before. And it challenges them in every way, physically, mentally, uh, your skill sets, your movement, use of cover, all of those things that get you through a hostile encounter is what this is all about. It's called combat tactics training because it's all about preparing for combat. And whether that's you in your protection world having to engage in combat to protect a uh, VIP principle, or a protectee, yeah. that principle is, is all that matters, really. You, you're not right. concerned about yourself. You're concerned right. about that principle. That's your job. And you're willing mm -hmm. to put your life on the line each and every day for that principle, whether Someone it's else. the same principle every day or a different principle every day. Mm -hmm. And so that means I want to have the upper hand. Nobody right. wants a fair fight. You know, everybody no. in politics, you want a fair fight in the real world. Nobody wants a fair fight. I want Absolutely these advantages not. in every way I can. I want the upper hand. I want to win the fight before the other guy knows he's even in it. And right. that's how you survive. Because if there's a bad guy that comes up and is going to do an assassination attempt on your protectee, you don't want a fair we want fight. All, we want to stack all the advantages before that ever yeah. happens. Right. And what does that mean? Preparation, planning, training, Developing those skill sets, getting your equipment squared away, dialed in and ready to use and being so comfortable with that equipment, the skills and tactics you need to deploy it, that there's no way in the world anybody no hesitation. is going to get the upper hand on you. Yeah, awesome. No, I'm excited. Yeah, here sometime to, to do some training. Oh, that'd be an that'd be an honor. You let me know when or maybe I'll come up with an excuse. <laughs> okay. Have an event out there somewhere. Where were you located again? In Virginia. Virginia. An okay. hour south of D.C. Okay, good to go. Good to know. Yeah, it'd be an honor. It looked like a lot of fun. I'm all about that stuff. And it is kind of the re more real world, the better. You know, we've done some hard skills intensives now under the brand of Protector Nation. And it was amazing. It was amazing to watch the guys kind of bang with each other and get physical and 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 learn how to protect their CCW weapons. We had Craig Douglas out running that portion and it was uh it was some good stuff. <laughs> good. Yeah, yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I'd, I'd love to do that. We um, and then I guess it's been amazing hearing about your life and your experiences. You know, I learned I learned a whole bunch on this on this episode. I know everyone's going to absolutely enjoy it. Um, in closing, uh, Tom, how do you want to be remembered? One of my favorite questions. What's it all for? What's it all been for, man? Uh, that I tried hard to do good. That's it. Whether that's in the job or in my home, in my community, for the country and for the world. Um, you know, I have a couple sons that are in the Marine Corps, just like you, and thank you for wow. your service. Thank and you, uh, I, when every time they're getting ready to deploy or when they went off to basic, I said, do well and do good. 
And what I mean by that is do well, do whatever you have to do well, but yeah. do good with it. And so hopefully, uh, hopefully I've done some good and I've done some of it well. So I'd like to be remembered that I did well and I did good. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's outstanding. I mean, you know, it's just kind of one of those things. Everyone kind of says it differently, but I did my best, you know, I did my best to do as good as I could, you know, that's, that's yeah. outstanding. And honestly, it gets me every time I hear it, you know, cause I'm doing the same thing, you know, like I, I, you know, I'm just, I'm just kind of doing the best I can with what I have. And I, I think, I think something I really, I was in a, an interview with this last week. I think something I really want people to see, and I, you already alluded to it at the beginning of this call is one of this interview is there's just so much you can do if you just want to do the best you can with what you have. Like, yep. and you're like, I'm just a guy. And I'm like, you know, a lot of the baddest dudes I interview say the same thing, you know, and, and even for me, like with my brands, I'm like, I just want you guys to know that like, I don't know. I was just like kind of a, you know, ADD, dyslexic, chubby little black kid that tried, <laughs> tried to be somebody, you know, try to make a contribution, you know? Um, it's beautiful, man. I'm, I'm glad well, you're seeing that. You're doing it. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's an honor to learn from you as well. Um, where, what are you doing these days and where can people find you uh, if they want to connect with you? Well, uh, combatics.com, C-O-M-B-A-T-I-C-S.com or combat tactics. Actually, I'm sorry. Let me take the .com off. It's combatics.training. Yeah. C-O-M-B-A-T-I-C-S or combat tactics.training. Either one, I think, goes to the same website or xgproductions.com. So our production company in Hollywood is called XG Productions. XG stands for XG Men. It was founded by, by my brother Jim and I, both former FBI, and we have, uh, we're getting ready. Uh, as a matter of fact, we'll find out in the next day or two, but we're, we're relaunching the show America's Most Wanted. And uh, it'll be a little different this go around. We're using- You mean only, like from back in the day, America's Most Wanted? Yep, yep. Outstanding. It's Most Wanted 2.0, it's coming back. My company is launching it and uh, we're doing it with Fox. We're waiting for an announcement any day on the pickup for the, for the season. We could, we might start, we shot a pilot back in October and we may start shooting the show next week. It's a decision that's gonna be made by Friday of this week. And wow. we're, we're doing it differently in that we, we are former law enforcement and we will be working very closely with law enforcement and using social media as a tool because, uh, you know, the old show, America's Most Wanted, captured, was responsible for the captures of almost 1,100 fugitives. Really? Over about 1,200 episodes. They almost caught one fugitive per episode. That's a heck of a record. And that started wow. back in 1988 before social media. Now you have the ability to reach anybody in the world instantaneously. So we're going to use technology, all kinds of really cool holographic technology to to do instead of showing you a sketch of what this guy looked like 30 years ago, what he might look like today. We'll have 3D holograms. We'll have oh, yeah. all kinds of really cool stuff. And our goal is to uh, put people that deserve to be behind bars behind the bars they deserve to be. So wow. keep an eye out for that. So we, we hope to be uh, having an announcement in the next uh, couple of weeks about uh, where that show's going and when it'll be on. So you're still protecting through story, even through oh, yeah, the entertainment. Got, you're still getting after it. That's we, so we good. We always That's... want to try and do good with what we can. And, uh, you know, we got, I got a few feature projects that I'm working on, too. But on the TV side, that's uh, that's a big one. Also writing a pilot for CBS TV right now with my brother and oh. uh, another writer, Scott Gemmel, who's the showrunner on uh, current showrunner on NCIS Los Angeles. So uh, we got, got a, several pots uh, there that are brewing that 
we're uh, it's a busy time. We have a, we have several audible projects too at XG Productions. If people like yeah. to hear about true crime, yeah, we uh, we have one called uh, Call Me God, and that was about the DC sniper case. And my brother and I uh, executive produced and wrote, and we appear in. And then another one called uh, Evil Has a Name about the Golden State Killer. And then we got a few others. You can go to Audible, Audible, which is the uh, audio, audio arm of Amazon. And Audible has several, what they call Audible Originals. And we've got, XG Productions has, I think we have three or four titles out right now. We have a few more coming over the next few months. We have a long slate of uh, true crime uh, projects that we're doing with Audible. Wow. I'm, I'm an Audible guy, so I'll be up in there checking those out, man. Yeah, I've, check them out. Let me know what you think. And then the, yes, the big sir. one that will be coming out uh, this year is called After the Fall, about 9-11. So wow. that one, that's a very big one. That's a very long project. We might even split it into two, but it's like the deepest ever look at 9-11. I know we, we touched on that subject earlier, but this is a very deep dive talking to all the primary investigators from the FBI so we have, uh, I think, about 30 people interviewed, mostly FBI and former FBI, some of the current people in the FBI still wow. working counterterrorism cases, and all the people that worked in New York, Shanksville, and Washington, D.C., and then around the world hunting uh, the people responsible for 9-11. Pretty uh, deep, intense look at uh, that. And if you're if you're convinced that uh, Loose Change is a true story... And <laughs> oh, man, you beat me you know, to it. <laughs> I want to listen to this and uh, hear a different version of things. Yeah, I was gonna be no, like, this is where you uncover all the conspiracy theory, but you already hit me. You already came through with the loose change thing. Yep. Oh man, good stuff, outstanding. Well, thank you so much once again, Tim. This has been a great, great time to get time for me to you know speak with you. Um, thank you for your time. I'm glad we're connected. I hope I do get to pop down to your range at some point. That's exciting. Let me know. And, uh, yeah, just want to say thank you once again. Okay, great talking to Byron. Thank you. All right. Take care. Talk soon. Bye. Yo, if you're a private security professional wanting to take your game to the next level, go to executiveprotectiontrainingday.com to check out my personal success package for private security professionals. Check it out, executiveprotectiontrainingday.com. And remember, y'all, hard skills do save lives, but soft skills get you paid. Boom. Boom. And to support this podcast, go to executiveprotectionlifestyle.com and contribute to our Patreon account. That Patreon account is what helps me make this podcast possible, contributing to this brand, what we're doing here, making it so that I can bring better guests on, making it so that we can plan more events and just expand the contribution to the private security industry and also to make an America a safer place. Do whatever you can, contribute whatever you can because it makes all of these things possible. Thanks for those contributions. Yo, and before we go, you know, I got a shout out to the sponsors, starting out with Primary Weapon Systems, PWS. They truly are the evolution of the rifle. Use Byron for 10% off. Grayman and Company, the most comfortable tactical suits in the game. Use Byron for 10% off with them. Ballistic Theory. You're going to start seeing a lot of stuff with me in Ballistic Theory because they got good ammo for good prices. Use Byron for my discount with those guys as well. Last but not least, Executive Protection Institute. Hey, go check them out and get your executive protection education on. Until the next podcast, this is Byron Rogers, protected by nature and by trade. Out. Boom.